Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 28, Hail to the Chief. To review the book, I'm joined, as usual, by... Well, it's two of the most fearsome gang leaders in Northern England. Mr. Stephen Royston, president of the Yorkshire Shin Kickers. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown, head honcho of the Cumbrian Biters. <laughs> uh, my name is Paul Abbott, and I remain unaffiliated with any paramilitary organisation since I left the Scouts. <laughs> as usual, before we get going, here's our plea for assistance... You can drop us a financial contribution by buying us a digital coffee for the grand sum of $3 at coffee.com, ko-fi.com, slash hark87podcast. But other than that, a rating, review, or sharing of the podcast makes a big difference to us, helping us be able to reach a wider audience. And let's start off in celebratory fashion, because we've reached a sort of milestone. In fact, we've passed one. We are now... Past half the the halfway point of the Ooh, series. Right, well. This is book twenty-eight of fifty-five books. It feels like we've only just begun. We've o- we've only just begun. <laughs> well, that's an achievement. And a, and a half. Mm. Whoa. That was good that. And it, well, and then also in the second half of the series, you've also got like the, the Christmas book is counted as one of those, so that's a shorter one. Uh, yeah. But then there's a couple of other things I could throw in there to balance that out. So I reckon we're we're just past halfway. Maybe we should start going from the end of the books and then work back into the middle. Because oh. that would make total sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would really help with the sort of continuity of character. Oh, I can't even imagine. No, no let's not do that. Only kidding. Only no, kidding. Don't do that. Anyway, Hail to the Chief is the second book in 1973. The one before was Let's Hear It for the Deaf Man, which was our last podcast. And, well, I'll run down the, the publication history for this to start off with, because I sometimes forget, you see, to okay. do that. And it is worth mentioning for fact collectors here, because this is the first book to be published by Random House. So he moves to a new publisher. And I think as you, as you read through the history, if you ever look at the history of who published what with McBain, and this goes for Evan Hunter as well, he does start to chop and change from the 70s onwards quite often who's publishing what for him. Mm. I think, well I think he got quite dissatisfied he felt that they weren't always pushing his work enough and so if he wasn't happy with that he'd get out of the contract with them whether he was doing it on like a rolling basis of like saying well you can do the next five books mm. of McBain and the next five Evan Hunters and then we'll see or whether it was on a ongoing basis or whether he sued them to get out of contract <laughs> which he has been known to get litigious yeah. I don't know but this is a start of a, of a few random house publications or certainly random house for publishing the main hardback editions any road so it comes out in random house in 1973 paperback in america comes out in 1975 in the signet edition uk it stays the same it's hamish hamilton 1973 for the hardback and pan in 1975 for the paperback as well in our bonus podcast you'll be able to hear us talk a bit more about the covers of all of those sorts of things so yeah new publisher while we're on the subject of new things we're in a new room for doing the podcast as well and it's very warm so we've had to open the window also i live near a train line so there might be all sorts of sounds going on in this uh, 
thing. So enjoy the new ambience. Indeed. I'll see what it's like. Before we get stuck into some reviews from the time, let's can we have a, just a general chat about this book? As in, like, hmm. bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's an odd one. A bit different. Uh, yeah. Well, as we know, he, he doesn't like us to settle in too much to what we expect from the series, does he? No, it, he doesn't. You, every couple of books you do get a little surprise and this is quite a surprise i suppose what i i haven't done or we haven't kept track of is every time i've said well this is a bit different or this is a bit weird or this is unusual, <laughs> i've not checked to see how often those books come hmm. but it might be about every two or three yeah it seem it seems it doesn't it i i think yeah there are atypical entries in the series more often than than you tend to think when you're looking back over the series as a whole. Yeah, because yeah. even if you have a story that seems a bit familiar, it might have been done in a totally... Because there's been mm. gang stories before, yeah, hasn't absolutely. there, some time ago? In in that respect, you feel like you, you should be on fairly familiar ground here, but it's it's a very different yeah. approach, obviously. Is it the first time he's used the, the kind of the, the confession, as it were, starts in like the first chapter, and that kind of runs parallel kind of, with the... The story, albeit yeah. the confession, only comes out bit by bit. There are some stories where the confession element plays to... a bigger part, but yeah. it generally tends to come at the end, as in, yeah. as in the investigation happens, then the person does the confession. Yeah, you, you often get a little transcript uh, towards the end, don't you? Because yeah. uh... in this, you you know, you know you find out who the guilty party is right from the outset, really, and it's how they're involved... Yeah, and is still a bit unexplained. Their interpretation you know. of, of events, as opposed to the narrator's depiction of events. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I think the, the point, the impression we're trying to get across here is, it is again different from what you would classify as a standard McBain eighty seventh precinct story. But as we're also suggesting that that's probably not as clear cut as you think, anyway. <laughs> One thing I did discover with this book is that it was reviewed quite a lot at the time. I could find a few more reviews than I normally can for this one. Normally there's there's the New York Times, there's the Observer, and perhaps you might find another one somewhere. I wonder because this was the first one out in Random House if they made a real push on getting yeah. it reviewed and stuff. Because um, that's what he would have been insisting on, I reckon. Or maybe due to its uh, topicality. Yes, and that's something we'll come on to. Mm. A bit of both, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I suspect it would have he would have had people in the uh, publicity department of, of Random House jumping to try and make sure he felt welcome and like he was being looked after. Yeah, but absolutely. I think yeah, you're right. The topical nature of this book, which we haven't really gone into yet, but we will reveal <laughs> to anyone who doesn't know before too long. So yeah, I got stuff from the Washington Post in October of 1973, and what does it say? Who's that guy Morgan Lines right for? <laughs> uh, well, we get to that. Is he coming up? I'm not going to read through much of these in directly from the thing because it they don't generally review the book so much as review the idea of the book. Mm, all right, okay. Well, maybe come but back for, to them. Yeah, well, maybe. But I'll say, like, the Washington Post is sort of saying, does it work? The answer is not that well. So Gene M. White in the Washington Post wasn't too keen. Mm. In the Times, the Times of London, it describes it as the cleverest 87th Precinct tale for mm. some time. Maybe, yeah. Uh, the Observer, Crime Ration, that's one of the usual ones we see from Maurice Richardson. This is McBain's shortest, loosest, and most horrific book so far. That's, again, I think that's pretty spot on. Yeah. 
New York Times Books of the Times. So this isn't Newgate Calendar. We've not got to him yet. This was reviewed in the main book section okay. as well. So not just the crime wow. section. He wasn't too keen on it. He says, wait six months and there'll be a better 87th precinct along. He invented the word mm. precinct there. That's quite nice. <laughs> And whereas I would normally give uh, Newgate Calendar to Morgan to mock, <laughs> like that's the sound of him, you don't really need to this time. Oh, why does he like it? Yeah, I think he, he likes it more because it's not like the normal ones. Oh, right. Yeah. Either that or Ed McBean threatened to break his kneecaps. Yeah, which, well, you don't know. He's, yeah. It's a bleak, curiously convincing character McBain presents, talking about the main guy in the book. You'd almost think he patterned him after a living model. Could the title of the book offer a clue? And I think that basically leads... Still being a bit of a knack, isn't it? <laughs> well, you always yeah. suspect. It's not much of a review. It is, like most of them, it is just saying, the book is about this, it has this character in, is it an allegory for what's going on? Mm. And actually, the answer is, of course, yes. Yes. Bizarrely, I found a full-page advert from one of the newspapers for this book, and, and it was like, it's like saying, oh, there's a real twist at the end of this. <laughs> Which there isn't. No. There's a sort of twist in you might get the concept at the end of it if you were reading it yeah. at the time. Mm. But it was being sold as like, what's the shock ending of this? It's yeah. like, well, actually, the, it's given away right at the start. No, the anyway. significance of that character grows as it as the book goes on. It doesn't immediately hit yeah. you, I don't mm. think. Even when you know kind of what the broad concept of the yeah. book is. In, in, in outline, then, this, this idea of it being the bloodiest book so far. Well... Yeah. Starts with a heck of a body count, doesn't it? One of the most gruesome scenes. Yeah, I tell you what, the yeah. beginning, the first like page or so is absolutely brilliant, I thought. It's pretty hard hitting stuff. Yeah, it is, it? yeah. They Just found the bodies in an open ditch on the northernmost extreme of the eighty seventh precinct. Yeah, you know. That's... You've already got the word bodies in there plural, so you know Yeah, it's just relentless amount of information, like for the first few pages really. Yeah, very good start actually. And it's a winter book as well, so ah. it's a it's a cold, frozen, wet, icy, horrible situation that uh, Corella and Kling find themselves in, having although, had to go out and investigate these bodies. I bet the weather plays a lesser part in this book than most, actually. Very very backseat, I thought. Yeah, it's just sort of yeah, it's just when the book's set rather yeah, than a, rather than part of the story. Yeah, it's less of a character of the. Because at the end, when it goes on about when the um, narrator is going on about the snow, and you're like, "Oh, is it winter? Oh, of course it is. Yeah, you know, hmm. bodies are in the ice and all that." So it's that's pretty dramatic. We've got six bodies in a ditch. Basically, someone's torn up the covering of of uh, some works that are going on, like a pipe laying or something like that, some cable road, laying, road works, and yeah. has thrown a load of bodies in, nude, including uh, that of a baby as one yeah. of them. So you, you you know you're in for a treat right from the off with yeah. the story. Yeah, and the, the killing doesn't really let up throughout, really. No. But Mon- Monaghan and Monroe, the homicide North cops, turn up. Yeah, to... ju- just what you need when you're already dealing with six bodies in a ditch. Yeah. So Corella and, and Kling, who are... Well, Kling, who's going through almost like post-traumatic stress, yeah. isn't he? Because he's, he's looking back to the bookshop where Claire Townsend was killed, it's it's suddenly loomed large in his mind. Yeah. Corella just finds it horrifying, and then Monaghan and Monroe turn up, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is terrible, but, you know, to look at the, you know, body of that one in the pervy sense. It's like, <sighs> yeah. Delightful. One thing that um, 
Monaghan does say is that he used to be based in the uh, 8-3, in the 83rd Precinct. Oh, yeah. And we've yet to meet a very important character from the 83rd <laughs> Precinct. Oh, right. Okay. He might be cropping up before too long. Yeah. Such as in the next book. Does he? Oh, maybe. Who are we talking Ooh. about? Well, I know what you're talking about, but... You know. I don't know, but I'm surprised it's the next one. I don't I think I knew he popped up uh, quite that early, yeah. Does then he disappear for quite a long time and then come back? I don't think so. I think he's around and about for quite a lot of it. Mm. He, the mysterious he that everyone who's read the books will know <laughs> what we're talking about. But yeah, that's a great little bit that Monaghan and Monroe are sort of saying... Yeah, the 8-3, that's one hell of a precinct. Oh, yeah, that's a precinct where Ralphie Donatello got shot in the back with an African blowgun. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, it sounds interesting there. Yeah, and he's going on about loads of grannies buried in a basement or something, oh, isn't yeah. he? He's trying, he's trying to yeah, find a case to outdo the amount of bodies that they've been faced with. It's like, and he's so, like, oh, that's definitely worse than this one. <laughs> he was a nice guy, Ralphie. Yeah. Or whatever. Yes, ridiculous... Uh, it does actually, this first, just as this first section concludes, it contains one of my favourite sort of McBain type writing moments. He says, On the river, a tugboat's horn bleated briefly and then was silent. It sounded as though someone had hit the button by accident. It's, I just love that. <laughs> it, it's, it's that weird thing of just that. You can imagine that sharp noise in yeah. the night and you're thinking, Why would you just. Oh, I love it. <laughs> this is the colour I like. This is why yeah. I like his writing. Then we get a couple of bits of forensics, descriptions and discussions about how you try and work out things like careers from what's on, you know, people's hands, fingerprints, evidence under the nails and stuff like that. All of which, as usual, amounts to absolutely nothing. (laughs) No clues for them. Which I hadn't really sort of... Until, I think, perhaps you'd mentioned it, Morgan, I'd not really twigged that a lot of the time the forensics produce absolutely yeah, nothing. Do a lot of work for very, very little reward. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, unless you unless you got a match with somebody with a record. Absolutely, yeah. So, like, the tip-off comes in a telephone call, doesn't it, really? Ultimately. A stroke of luck. But what the book does, before we actually go through it in, through the story in, in chronological terms, or rather the way he writes it, before he starts writing the chron chronological story it keeps being interrupted by a statement being given by someone at the police station yeah you have to get your head around the notion that this guy who we don't know what his relation to the story is is telling us all about what has happened before we see it happening in the book which is an interesting thing Mm. and there's no big pronouncements about when it changes from one voice to the other really, other than the first one, where it's it's said, statement of one, Randall M. Nesbitt, made on the 14th day of January. And unusually for the series, it's not sort of really kind of very clearly marked out like a police statement. It's not reproduced in, in, no. in the font to make it look like a police report or anything. So I think it's quite deliberately kind of blended in with the, the, the more regular narrative, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he's given himself a bit of a, a writing challenge to, to do it in this way, I think. But Randall M. Nesbitt is the is the character who's referred to in all those reviews I was mentioning at the top. Yeah. R.M.N. Yeah. Randall M. Nesbitt. <laughs> Who could he be uh, standing for, I wonder? What, what, what could the M stand for? Is it Millhouse? Well... We don't know. Hmm. Yeah, you never actually find out what his middle initial <laughs> stands for in this book. Known to his, his followers as Randy, we get to know Randall M. Nesbitt quite well through the course of this story and eventually figure out why why we're hearing this this statement. 
Shall we just basically say what it is? This is uh, an allegory for Nixon's... Well, the year's 1973, isn't yeah. it? So, so we're in late 1973. Mm. Nixon has been in the news somewhat. <laughs> Although, looking at the actual times of what happened with politics and events surrounding politics... Mm. By mid nineteen seventy three, wasn't he wasn't fully implicated in, in no. Watergate by that point. When did he resign? Well, tell me everything you know about Nixon because I don't know anything about him. He was a long-standing Republican politician. Yeah, who ran against uh, Kennedy, Kennedy and, and lost, lost in sixty. Yeah, yeah nineteen sixty. Won in quite a landslide in. 68? 60, yeah, 68, yeah. And was then re-elected in 72. Re-elected in 72, yeah. In the run-up to the re-election, uh, had bugged the headquarters of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tr- snitching, trying to find what they're up to. Um, yeah, kind of uh, very much valued his reputation as a peacekeeper, but used some quite aggressive means to maintain peace as well, I think, like very close uh, relationships with sort of defence uh, people and, and secret service and, and what have you. Yeah. Uh, some now, underhand he, I can't remember whether he was responsible for... Because he ultimately did start the withdrawal from Vietnam, yeah. didn't he? But That's, I think yeah. slightly before that, or was it... Johnson, who massively escalated the war. Well, the, I, I, think I think Nixon was in some way implicated in the notion of uh, scuppering the Paris Treaty that could have brought it to a, conclo- uh, a conclose, to a close or conclusion earlier. And mm. him, or certainly people he was associated with, were rumoured to have helped to have tried to scotch the Paris Treaty, thus extending the war. Mm. There'll be people who know if, stuff about this who will yeah, be screaming. At oh, their, absolutely, yeah, they did. At, at their, but he was known. He, is, he was also known for being a bit of a paranoid weirdo, wasn't yes. he? Like had an enemies quite, list. Quite an an odd guy. Yeah, who was you know his paran. Well, his paranoia destroyed him. Really. Yeah. And he, he, you know, so. he, and I guess it probably paired with um, maybe the the declining years of J. Edgar Hoover. Um, yeah. In in the FBI, well, that's a dangerous combination of people to have lurking in the shadows. Yeah. Well, it was Henry Kissinger as well? Who Henry, was, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Very uh, is the word hawkish kind <laughs> of you know a man who was very confident in his only an opinion of things really. Uh, yeah, so that is our he's yeah Nesbit so man is the parallel for um, yeah, is for Nixon basically. And obviously, you take him at face value to start with, but then you start to wonder how reliable a witness he is to uh, what's transpiring in the book. And it gets more and more just blatantly obvious as the... uh, (laughs) Yeah. As the book goes on, he's deluded. The, yeah, um, the, 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 that's absolutely the word, isn't it? The sheer, total, uh, all-encompassing delusion that he's wrapped up in. He can't possibly see himself as anything other than this sort of great leader who's who's keeping the peace for, for everyone and who's doing what's right for yeah. the but community. The, and, but the um, but the fact that the Nixon and this Nesbit are totally interchangeable as well. There's an entire paragraphs later in the book where. 
it could be just totally describing Nixon. Pretty much, yeah. And, that, and that's exactly what it's doing, really. Uh, uh, but it's, it starts off a little bit more subtly, I think. Yes, yeah, def- they, definitely. it definitely ramps up the parallel, doesn't it, as, yeah. as we go along. Yeah, yeah. To, to the, to, by the end, he might as well just be going, I am not a crook. Yeah. Uh, Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, was very... Well, I don't say very. He was a liberal, basically. Yes. And... He was liberal, he was anti-war, and what I did find is I had a look at sort of using Vietnam particularly as a as a good way to find out opinions because obviously that influenced a lot of writing and stuff. So Evan Hunter wrote two books that were more or less about Vietnam. One was called Sons, that was in 1969, which is a sort of generational tale of families in different wars mm. and seeing different political events. But Vietnam figures large in that. And also in 1971, and I've mentioned this before, there was the book Nobody Knew They Were There, which is a sort of semi-fantastical, slightly in the future tale of getting someone to bomb a train with the president on it. Mm-hmm. So that's another sort of anti-war story as well. But I also found a newspaper article from the wonderfully named newspaper Patent Trader. Excellent. Which is, I don't know if patent is a place or or what... But it was a local newspaper in Westchester County where McBain lived once he moved out of the city. This is from 29th of May 1971, and it's all the article's basically all about how the title is He Wants to Help End the War, you know. And the idea being his sons were more or less of the age where they could be sent off to fight by that point. Mm. In fact, they definitely were. And he was keen that they wouldn't. And. So this, this this newspaper article discusses this anti-war theme in his books and then says, quote, Mr. Hunter plans to move on from the war theme now because it feels it has occupied enough of his writing time. Mm-hmm. Well, here we are two years later yeah. and he's still ostensibly writing about war, albeit couched in the idea of a gang war. Yeah, I imagine probably living in the States at that time, it was probably very difficult to escape that kind of theme and to get that out of your mind and to avoid your art kind of reflecting it really yeah absolutely the story moves on we have we have these parallel tales we have the confession then we have the investigation popping in and out of that as well Mm. and then we have Maya Maya's side story as well which is Mm -hmm. brilliant it's a Corella and Kling case for the most part isn't it it is it is yeah and Maya Maya gets sent off, or he didn't get sent off, he gets rung up by someone who wants to talk to a policeman about whether they think TV's affecting the uh, the violence in the streets and things like that. It's a, a freelance writer who hasn't actually got a market for this, just wants to do this, yeah. this thing. And Maya Maya's like, well, I'll have to talk to the lieutenant. And the lieutenant says, yeah, go on, do it then. <laughs> He's like, yeah, but I've got to go and talk to a load of girls about how not to get raped. So Maya Maya's having a brilliant time of it. He has to go and give a speech, which he's probably not very happy about, uh, about self-defence against sexual assault. And he has to talk to this person whose name is what? Um, Montgomery somebody. Montgomery Pierce Hoyt. Maya Maya doesn't believe anyone's called Montgomery Pierce Hoyt, <laughs> but it's probably because he's called Maya Maya and is, is a bit sensitive about those sorts of things. <laughs> That's actually when, when he's doing the... Um, the talk to the, the girls' college about how not to get mm-hmm. raped or what happens if someone tries to rape you, that's also intercut with another bit of storytelling as well. So yeah, basically, he's got to... Um, he starts giving his, his speech and it keeps cutting backwards and forwards between the, the cops finding the place where one of the characters who's been killed was held captive. So a girl 
who has been taken away and beaten, basically, and ultimately killed. And there's not even gaps between the paragraphs. You have one paragraph of Maya Maya doing his talk, and the next paragraph is a description of the, them finding this house where this, this girl has been held. It's very much a sort of TV cutaway, sort mm. of two-stream storytelling type of thing, which is very interesting. So there's lots of bits of this book where it's one thing contrasting mm. against another. It is. So yeah, Maya Maya gets that side job to do, and there's barely any other cops in this at all. Mm. Uh, there's the chap from the other precinct, isn't there? Yeah, Who's no, new... yeah no other cops Bro- from the 8-7. Yeah, that's right. Charles Braun. 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 That's how Braun. I... Br- Braun. Braun. There's no T in it, though. It's the Braun. Braun. Yeah. So the guy from the 101st... He was like a bit of a gang specialist, isn't he? Yeah. Got his big file. His big file. Yeah, there's a few, and there's a few patrolmen from the 101st Precinct who get to witness the most horrifying uh, aspect of the book, which we've not got to yet. So ultimately, the story is gang warfare, isn't it? Yes. It is, yeah. How old are these people? Does he ever tell you that? I, well, I, th- I think one of them, so Johnny, who's one of the gang members, is only 17 or something like that. Oh, right. And the girl who gets pregnant, Midge, is 15. Yeah. So I think they're all supposed to be te- yeah, late teens. Late teens, yeah. Essentially. But they're organised gangs. Yeah, with with serious sort of weapons. This is not, not sort of kids waving knives at each other. They've got serious firearms, haven't they? Yeah, they yeah. even talk about the fact that someone was in a gang back in the 50s or something and how unsophisticated <laughs> it was when they were attacking each other with car aerials and zip guns. Yeah. And he's like... We've got 34 grenades or something, he says at one yeah. point, doesn't so, he? So I guess revisiting the kind of gang issue from earlier novels, you can really see kind of how these things have escalated. Yeah. Uh, Ramped up somewhat. Uh, even since, you remember we did uh, the Young Savages mm. film and and that was all about gangs. We're well, <laughs> well more advanced than that. So where's, because uh, it's set in the part of Riverhead, what, what's that the analogy of? Riverhead's uh, the Bronx, isn't it? Well, that's where all the rioting was in the, wasn't that like in the 70s, I think, or around that time. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, because that's where Corella lives. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it is. Because he goes on about, oh, that's the only bit, that's the only bit that's not deteriorated yeah. like the rest of it. But, but essentially it's three gangs, but... Randall M. Nesbitt's idea is he's going to bring peace mm-hmm. and he's going to do it by killing everyone. Yep. By, well, yeah, he's... Yeah. Violent the, the, only, the, the, the underlying concept being there's only one peace worth having and that's the peace that he's dreamt up yes. and anybody else's type of yeah. peace is not peace in his yeah. head. <laughs> it's not going to yeah. be peaceful if people disagree with him so he'd better kill everyone who did, does disagree with him and yeah. then uh, everyone will be happy. Yeah. And he's he's so moral, and that's said in speech mm. marks. You know, he hates anything to do with sex. He doesn't like people to swear. He doesn't yeah. like anyone to do drugs. Nixon had a big thing about the marijuana oh, yeah. um, lobbying stuff as well. Absolutely hilariously um, trying to enlist Elvis to report other people for using drugs when he was absolutely off his face on uh, tranquilizers the entire time, I'd imagine. Yes. Well, there's that famous photo, isn't there, of, <laughs> of big fat Elvis shaking hands when he's made... <laughs> Is he made an honorary FBI agent or something like that? Or he wanted to be? Yeah. Weird. Weird times. <laughs> but, yeah, so Randall Nesbitt's all about if he wants that version of things. Mm. But he also wants everyone to be white. 
He doesn't yes. want them. So he's he's up facing off against a Puerto Rican gang called the Death's Heads. Yep. Cool name for a gang. Yeah, cool name. They've got the white Swedish army cults, which I'm kind of fascinated by too. Because I think we should try and look up some images of those because I, I want to know what those look like. Oh, we'll get to they Mr. Royston fun. on that. So a white Swedish army coat. With a gargoyle drawn on the back. Yeah, and the password of something, something along the lines of the notter is our dame. It's something like that, yeah. There's a quite interesting thing. Twice in this book, Kling is going on, is thinking constantly about something he's heard or misheard. <laughs> And it's just occurring to him a day later or an hour, you know, hours later. Yeah, it happens <laughs> to, twice in this book. Which yeah, is to, never... to, to no consequence whatsoever. Yeah. It's just just a thing that happens. Oh, I figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> and the other main gang, the 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 black gang, is the Scarlet Avengers. Oh, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh, nice hood. I, I, th- I think if I was in a gang, I could definitely go for one of those. Especially in the weather in this book. True. Although it'd be nasty if you were eating any kind of messy food. Oh, yeah. Spillages. Ooh. Never yeah, come out. Not, not good for spillages. But what also, we don't actually find out the name of Nesbitt's gang for ages in this mm. as well, which I think is another sensible thing to do. Yeah. Because ultimately it comes out as his gang is the Yankee Rebels, which is about as waspish a sort of name as you can yeah. possibly get. And their logo on the back is is the Confederate, Confederate flag. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. A... so it's it's basically a three way tie between not tie. It's a three way battle between these. Yeah, because he, he spends a lot of time banging on about what a brilliant strategic mind he's got, mm. and yet he's kind of outwitted at every absolutely stage. Yeah. And it's like, well, how was I supposed to know they were? <laughs> yeah, it they was were then when us, it's we then when blank screwed it up, and yeah, I, I wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for so and so. So he's just like, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the major major Nixon parallels in this is to do with a girl in the gang. So a girl in the gang gets pregnant because he's so moral, he won't allow her as a as an auxiliary member of the gang to have an abortion. Yep. Forces her to give or tells her to stay a member of the gang. She has to give up a child, which she does. She's only 15. This upsets her somewhat, and then when she hears that a baby's been killed, she starts talking about it in the sense that she rings up the 87th precinct. She's on the phone to the cops when the someone yanks the phone cable out of the wall. Mm. Which seems like very dramatic license until you actually look into some of the people involved in Nixon's world, yeah. such as Martha Mitchell. So I don't know if you know anything about Martha Mitchell nope. at all. Nope. Well, John Mitchell was the Attorney General under Nixon. Yeah, John Mitchell, yeah, yeah. His wife was Martha Mitchell. Okay. So in the days immediately after the Watergate break-in in 1972... John Mitchell enlisted a guy from the F- former FBI agent called Steve King to stop her learning any more about the break-in or contacting reporters because she she had, according to them, a big mouth, basically. She would talk to anyone. They called her the mouth from the south and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Despite these efforts, Martha learned that one of her friends, her daughter's bodyguard and the driver, James W. McCord Jr., were among those arrested. She began to explore the events in order to help him while she was on a phone call with a press reporter, Helen Thomas, about the Watergate breaking, Steve King pulled the phone cord from the wall. On other occasions, Mrs. Mitchell was held against her will in a hotel room, forcefully sedated, and had a physical struggle with men that left her needing hospitalisation, you know, doctor's treatment. <laughs> so Jeez. what happens in this book is someone talking to someone where the phone cable is pulled out uh-huh. of the wall. 
Someone is taken off to a remote location to keep them quiet and out of the way. Someone has a struggle with men, but sadly, rather than just needing stitches, the character in the book is killed. Yeah. So I didn't realise until I found out about Martha Mitchell, and I must thank some of our friends on Twitter for a sort of alerting me to the yeah. parallel of that. Wow. It, how, quite how parallel the parallel yeah. was. Oh, it's fascinating, actually, yeah. So I'm sure you could probably, if you were so minded, go through the book and probably tie in lots of... Every oh, big, yeah. big, what a big Big owl. Anthony. Big yeah. Anthony's probably well, some, yeah. somebody, isn't he? So this character, Steve King, from this ex-FBI guy, who was the security agent for the the, camp, the president's campaign, mm. he must be the Bullet or Big Anthony or yeah. Jojo, one of these characters yeah, in the book. Yeah. But he's all right because he's now Trump's ambassador to the Czech Republic. <sighs> so, you know... The funny thing about Watergate is it sort of, certainly for the big names involved, mm. it just sort of went. Oh, yeah. It was done. Well, Nixon was given a full pardon by Gerald Ford, wasn't he, straight after he resigned, yeah. basically. Yeah. And then... And it never once accepted that he'd actually done anything wrong, I don't think. Yeah. Which actually, Well, I think that, uh, that famous interview with David Frost was, I think, the... The only, was that the only time he ever kind of showed any remorse about it? And, and it was more like... Was feeling he, sorry for himself. Yeah, and he felt bad for the fact that it had a negative effect on the country, but he didn't really actually think he'd done yeah. anything morally wrong at all, which is just ludicrous, really. And it took uh, David Frost ages to actually get him to that position yeah. where he'd yeah. talk about it in, those sen- in that sense, because mm. yeah. he was very media-minded. As... The character in the book is when he's talking <laughs> to the police. You know, he's, he's like, I know all about the image. I want to present this sort of image. He's... Well, I was just looking before. Nixon didn't resign till August 1974. Exactly. So that's after after this. Yeah. A long yeah. time. So this must have just been using what was in the, the public domain at the time Definitely. to just... So, Evan Hunter thinking, right, I'm going to get the shoe in as well here. You know, expressing his outrage. Definitely. And, it was that that was the very much the the mood at the time. Uh, Phil Oaks had just released "Here's to the State of Richard Nixon," which is one of the great kickings delivered in song. All right, well, magnificent, we'll strongly recommended. We'll have to see if we can link to that on the on the Twitter feed. Um, so yeah, Bain must have been writing this before anything official happened mm. to Nixon, because like Nixon's "I Am Not a Crook" statement doesn't happen until November of 1973, mm. which yeah. is after this book's yep. come out. I think all the um... Bernstein and uh, Woodward. Woodward stuff. That was started in 70... Yeah, that had happened. Two, because yeah. I remember in the movie, they watched the inauguration, mm. uh, uh, which would have been inauguration. One of January 72. 73. That would have been January 73, wouldn't it? I so, think. Yeah. Well, the Watergate trial begins in 73. Yeah, so but what I'm saying is it would have been public knowledge yeah. in 1972 yeah. along you know through the newspapers before it became official through the courts yeah. the actual accusations were made because um, it was a point where they wanted to get the tapes from the oval office weren't they yes but yeah, uh, and, and nixon was basically like oh i've taped everything i've said and i'm a shitbag yep perhaps i won't give you the tapes well yeah, yeah one of the first times in here it becomes really obvious is when they go on about bugging the yeah. other gang's headquarters uh, how easy it's it is like to how bug. easy it is to you can just mail order a bug yeah, and, and send some, some kids, kids in yeah. so that if if they were arrested nobody would bat an eyelid kind of thing i thought yeah. that was very funny <laughs> um but yeah he, he did he definitely hung on 
until it was absolutely inevitable that he was definitely going to be impeached, didn't he? Yeah, and he did during that time, he got people to resign and sacked them left, yeah. right and centre as well to try and cover up yeah. or, or, you know, distance himself. As as we, we continue to see, it's totally possible for someone to be a, a massive, blatant criminal and still hang on to power for a very long, very, very long time. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, really? It's, <laughs> it, it looks like most of the stuff was brewing became pretty obvious July 1973. So you must have rattled this book out in... In a fit of rage. Yeah. yeah well, so when was the publication date? Uh, it had been late September, October. Yeah, so you must have just rattled this out in like the late summer. Which might explain why there was two books in 1973 hmm. where there isn't normally. Yeah. yeah. Isn't, well, he doesn't normally do two books a year at this point. Yeah. So. I mean, we, we kind of feel like... Um, let's see if the Deaf Man was written as a fairly expediently anyway, yeah. and then this. I think it feels angry, doesn't it? I feel like he's definitely it's hammering away at the typewriter. Well, it, yeah. it's, it's a dead straightforward story, isn't it? Really, mm. in terms of what actually happens, and it's yeah. a short just, book. As it's well. just yes. the, the the cleverness is in how it's presented, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the bodies keep keep racking up through this Ooh, so yeah. you end up you, you've got the six bodies at the start and there's an there's a certain investigation in identifying who those people are including the one white guy who seems to be on his own when the others are, are clearly a puerto rican couple a black couple uh, child and then there's this white guy and uh, eventually his mad his mad girlfriend turns up from california and tries to sleep with corella <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah in some flea bag hotel indeed yeah he has some difficulty dissuading her from her determination to sleep with him, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, I think she just wants someone to get her out of the crap hotel, ultimately. She sort of stands out as like this sort of tanned Californian beauty who's turned up and is in one of these really crap hotels in in (laughs) Isler in in the depths of winter. But aside from that, that happens. Then we have the girl who's killed, Midge. We have a boyfriend who doesn't want to take part in a later gang fight, so he's killed Mm. to keep him out of the way as well. We've got packs of wild dogs roaming around Riverhead that the police have to keep going after, which is just like a weird aside. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know if any of our listeners lived in New York in, in in the early 70s and were aware of any plagues of wild dogs, but it wouldn't surprise me to know that that might happen. Yeah, from what people tell you about New York at that point in the 70s, I think there were definitely some very bleak areas, weren't there? Yeah, it's entirely plausible. And then we get to... Ultimately, the pitched battle mm. at the end, which starts with, as I mentioned before, the absolute horror of um, gang warfare with like, well, how should we start this raid on the place where we know they've captured a couple of our men? How should we get in there? Oh, I know. We'll throw two hand grenades into this shop. Into a, into a sweet shop. Yeah. Because <laughs> there wouldn't be anyone innocent in a sweet shop. No. God forbid. And, oh, it's horrible. It's... it's I think it's made more horrible by the fact that when you get Mr. Nesbitt talking about it, he's, he's, he's got a very sort of bland kind of attitude to all, towards all these, um, quite a politician's manner about all these horrific acts that he's uh, sanctioned as well. Yeah, and um, he keeps insisting he hasn't got any blood on his hands, mm. which he literally doesn't, but that's... Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. at, the, at the very end, summing up when the... Uh, the other guy's shot. He, he, like, claims not to have shot him as well, yeah. which just seems totally implausible in that why would he be the only person that's unarmed in his gang? 
He's de- yeah, yeah, he's, he's just just t- total outright light. Yeah, it's not just spinning, mm. spinning it. It's like beyond spin, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. In terms of that attack on the on the candy store, I wouldn't want to give anything away. Say, so say, I think it probably is one of the most horrific scenes of violence in yeah, the Seventh Precinct. Yeah, it is and those poor officers from the hundred and first, oh. those those patrolmen from the hundred and first precinct who, oh, who arrive dear. at the scene. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I felt a bit like that just reading it. So yeah, having not, to actually be there, it's not nice. It's really, really not. But yeah, again, he thinks he's Randall Nesbitt thinks he's brilliant, but even his his idea of attacking these two gangs at the same time goes wrong because mm. he, he ends up in a pincer movement of two other gangs. He's just he's, yeah, he's just he's just totally out. Uh, yeah, does some, does some of his like gang. Defect as well. I couldn't really understand. There was, was some some question, some some suggestion that, that the two who've been kidnapped had actually defected um, from from the other from the other gang. Do you think is that a reference to anyone in the Nixon cabinet possibly um, going over to communist Russia? It, it, members of the the Yankee rebels going over to the Scarlet Avengers. I don't know. Really. It I feels think, like it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. If, I'm sure. Uh, uh, a better Nixon Watergate scholar than than I could could tie there up the very easily. There doesn't seem to be anything accidental yeah, I in feel any like of that's these a characters. Very specific reference to I, something. I, I isn't think you it, could run down all these Chingo equals, yeah, you know, yeah, Envy definitely. Kissinger. You know, there'll just be a yeah. Um, oh yeah, I'm sure, and uh, I'm sure at some point while I'm doing my research for the the book that I'm writing about the '87 precinct, <laughs> I'm going to have to do that for this one, which is going to make it quite an entry in the book. That'll be fun. Yeah, I'm sure it will be when I finally get there. 30,000 words and I haven't even started on the stories yet. Right. There'll be plenty of time for that. I hope there's some publishers listening. But yeah, there we go. Let's safe to say it ends with uh, Nesbitt getting captured. Hence his, his confession, which actually start, comes at the start of the book. So you turn the whole thing on its head again. Corella and Klinger left with it, just going, he doesn't know what he's done. Mm. He just does not know. He will not confess to it. And it's clearly, that's what people were seeing with Nixon, was he's clearly done what all this stuff that's come out in the papers. It's clearly linked to him, because how would the president not know about funds being used from the campaign for re-election of the president, or creep, I think, as people call it? <laughs> yeah. How could he not know that this was happening, blah, 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 especially once they started mm. to tie the bits together, like the Bernstein and Woodward stuff. That film's very good, isn't it? Is that which one's it called? All the President's Men? Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it. It's I very really good, want to. but yeah, it's very it mumbly. Mm. You basically got Dustin Hoffman talking about it. Everyone's talking like that. Oh, no, it's, it's good, yeah. I've seen but it, it is fantastic. Yeah, right. so, cool. yeah, I've seen it a few times. Uh, where's the bit? I was, there was a bit in this I was... I'd remembered. It's like a bit where it is just basically total description of Nixon. Oh, it's when like, they first meet him, uh, as in what the physical description? No, no, not the physical description. It's near the end when he, he <laughs> a short chopping wave. I bet Nixon used to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just bear with me. I did find myself towards the end starting to um, hear his voice in my head in the the, the Richard Nixon voice from Futurama. Yes, I kept thinking about... Well, that's the thing with Nixon, isn't it? It's, this is part of the problem, is that he's been rehabilitated through becoming almost a comical figure very quickly after the events of Watergate, and obviously it was a massive scandal. But then the Frost-Nixon stuff, which obviously 
set the stamp on him as as this you know slightly tragic figure in some ways although clearly he mm. wasn't the opinion polls were dead set against him mm. well it wasn't much longer after that before he became sort of like a bit rehabilitated and people yeah. would be going oh nixon yeah well he got open trade with china and he ended the vietnam war yeah and then he becomes a bit of a figure of fun on things like future armor yeah. and stuff like that it's uh, it's bizarre and alarming really it's almost like we never bloody learn. Oh, yeah, it's almost exactly like that, yeah. Of course, I, I think I first learned about Nixon at all from the, the song Dickie's Such an Asshole by... Uh, oh, by it's Zappa. in the letter, isn't it? Uh, Did anyone else struggle with the handwriting? Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> so, Steve-O, what's, what's this description what? of... of someone as Nixon let's just say that this, so you've, you've found something that's in the letter so in the yeah, well, the, the reproduction in this book is not of any form or procedure thing it's of someone's handwritten letters yeah it's if from you can the, figure it's, out what it says yeah, it's from the guy from uh, is he from LA is he yeah, the so guy who's trying guy. to like help mm. who, who is one of the bodies in the ditch and he's written to his his girlfriend who's come over uh, in writing suspiciously like writing we've seen in other books as well, isn't it? <laughs> Strange book, slightly worse anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's got a very good uh, description of Randall Nesbitt. He says, The real problem may prove to be the president of the Yankee rebels, who from all... Portoles has he, told me. Has told me, is an egotistical, brutal, unforgiving, humorless, puritanical, and basically rather stupid person <laughs> who has detached himself into believing yeah, deleted, that he think, is the yeah. only one in the neighbourhood who knows the true and righteous path and told anyone who disagreed with him in where is either, with crazy or... or is either crazy... Or that or is intent on thwarting, thwarting his grandiose and thoroughly self-serving schemes. His name is Richard Nixon, <laughs> and I will do try to talk to him. You know, it's just yeah. When I read yeah. that bit, it's just kind of yeah. That is uh, McBain letting just, loose. I think on, on yeah, it, definitely. Should also say the handwriting is dreadful. So yeah, if you're stumbling yeah. over any words there, it's. I'm not the greatest reader, uh, but uh, it's quite. I, 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 Take a few reading it for the first. I could only time. make out about every third word when I was uh, reading this, but I, I got the gist. Yeah, basically. So yeah, I thought that was quite fun. Well, I, but I did laugh when I read that bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Which I think I thought summed it up quite nicely. Yeah. Indeed. So. I will say there is a couple of uh, good 87 Precinct moments in this, but it is not one that scores very highly, I don't think, on the uh, on the bingo card. But there is one good chapter, start of chapter four, where it's lots about the history of the city. Hmm. So it actually explains the derivation of Riverhead. Yeah. As well. There's a Mayor Mayor bit in as well. It's, it's, it's not lacking bingo, but... No, uh, no. The, 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 medium. The, there are a few. Yeah. Loads and there is at least one character in it who has got green eyes and red hair and must come from an Irish background who's a woman, yeah. which I think is probably the most common thing in the books, more than anything else. There's Ooh. always a female character who's got, I was going to say red eyes and green hair then, <laughs> green eyes and red hair and, and comes from an Irish background. Drop bags. Drop <laughs> bags. Don't remember uh, her. Bless. Popping up. Talk about British ephemera. Yep, there we go. We normally keep those for the... There's somebody at the door. There's somebody (laughs) at the door. Oh dear, oh dear. Right, well, we're going to have to start summing this one up then, and it's a bit of an interesting one. I will just give you some comments from some of our our friends online who I asked what their opinion were. So, uh, Bill Slocum, he suggests that... um, 
He clearly had some things to say about the direction of the country, <laughs> Vietnam and Nixon, so I guess he got that out of his system a bit. Too bad there wasn't Twitter in 1973. <laughs> I think McBain would have been insanely brilliant on Twitter. I'm sure he would. <laughs> he would probably have taken no guff as well. Mm, quite. In fact, it probably would have been a bad thing for him to have Twitter. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, who else have we got? So, uh, Hank Wellman, and um, it was Hank who alerted me to the Martha Mitchell uh, parallel, it says, knowing that the novel was intended as a fuck you to Nixon makes it more interesting in terms of the little allegories. But I still tend to think of it as a misfire. Bottom rung 87th Precinct novel. Oof. Our friend Matthew Sullivan says... I think I like Hail to the Chief because of the Nixon allegory rather than in spite of it, which I think is the issue with some people oh. have with this. The Nixon is a sick crook trope, had legs long before Watergate broke, especially in liberal New York circles. McBain proves himself a great hater here. <laughs> <laughs> Although I imagine Hail to the Chief certainly dated very quickly. I think that, again, that's possibly its mm. issue because a lot of people did mention... Oh, I didn't really realise. Yeah, well, it was probably all of us didn't necessarily grab the allegory first time round. Well, the f- yeah, the first. Well, that was time your first. Time. Reading, this was my first time round. So. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd alerted you. <laughs> yes, Steve. I was. Well, the, yeah, the first. The, yeah, when I first read it, I was just marching through them in order, and I would have had no concept of. Yeah. Kind of exactly when it was re- re- written. I can't yeah. remember thinking I knew if I've, I'd forgotten or I didn't know. Yeah. So yeah, uh, but. Uh, Reading it a second time, it's uh, reasonably obvious. Yeah, yeah once, you, well, once, it's once certainly, you're looking for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and our friend uh, Andrew said, I really liked Hail to the Chief style-wise, especially the bouncing back and forth between the case and the interrogation. For me, the unique narrative coupled with the brutal events in the novel makes it one of the more memorable entries. So we've got a bit of a mm. split on that, really, yeah, there. Yeah. Some well, folks liking it, some some folks not. So we will round up the scores in a minute. I will give Steve-O Kenneth's output of recent books. Oh, because yeah, okay, yeah. You know we can't grade it without checking no, in no. with Kenneth, our computer who scores our scores. Yeah, I think I'd agree with, like, uh, uh, Hank and uh, the other chap there. It, it, I think it, its success is, is the analogy, isn't it, and the knowing what it's about, I think. And it's interesting and good for that, and the jumping around... I quite enjoyed as well, but I think if you take that out of it, if 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 you didn't know that, then maybe it starts to fall down a little bit. I don't know. Well, um, do you want to give a score then, Steve? So yes, yeah, so, um, yeah. I think I would be tempted to go about seventy-five police shields. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting and yeah. Okay, interesting, and yeah, um, I'll go with that one. Morgan, then. Well, yeah, you know, going into it, knowing that it was this allegory which seemed like a bit of an, an oddity within the series, I was fully prepared to not particularly like this, but I actually really enjoyed it. I know maybe um, the the allegory isn't the most subtle thing, but I, I don't think it needs to be. I like, I kind of like the rage I don't know if that's if it's just because I kind of pretty much every day wake up, look at the news, and feel the same way at the mm. moment, and it just kind of taps into that mood. Oh God, but it's exhausting, isn't it? Um, yeah, if you read it and you didn't know the analogy, and then somebody told you about it, you'd be like, "Oh bloody hell!" I, I would have enjoyed that book so much more had I known it and been able to scrutinise. 
Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I like the structure as well. I think that actually works really well. As, as you say, I think quite filmic sometimes in the kind of yeah. snap cuts and things. I thought that was great. Also, what we didn't mention, a little bit of happiness for, for Bert Kling there, oh, I think, yes. too. Oh, yeah. Nice. Sure, it's all plain sailing from here on out. Oh, great yes, yeah. stuff. We, Happy yeah, days. Sailing into the sunset. Yeah. That's a good point. There's very little, actually, of the cops in their various environments, really. Like, Except that Kling and Corella are in a car together and Kling's thinking about asking Augusta to marry him. He's only known her nine months, I think, at this point. Uh, but he does. Yeah. So we'll see so, how that goes on. All plain sailing, I guarantee you. Um, so, yeah, one little happy bit amidst a really bleak kind of uh, vision. I also quite like the little bit at the end where they slightly break the fourth wall. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in some ways, it's a bit clunky, isn't it? It is it's a, a bit like they all turn to camera. Oh, and go, yeah. Yo. Pretty much. Well, I, I quite like that. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's it's actually got quite a lot to recommend it for me anyway. Yeah, not necessarily the best on kind of the terms of what you really look for in the series, but I, I thought it was great. 78 police shields? 78 police shields. Okay. And I will sum it up in saying this. The first time I read this, I had no idea. Like Steve, I had no idea about the Nixon thing whatsoever. Again, it was when I was getting them just as and when and reading them and having perhaps read something like Sadie when she died. About I think I probably got that at the same time I got this. Mm-hmm. And then reading this. I was never a big fan of the gang stories. Mm. And this is like the ultimate one in the series. But now, so after that reading, I would have scored it probably quite low, probably like down 40, 50 even. Oof. Reading it now and being able to see the parallels and like you say, feel the anger coming through (laughs) and understanding that, I'm uh, I'm minded to give it more marks, although I'm still minded to keep it in the 60s rather than the 70s. So I'm going to give it 65, please, Shields. Dragging the scores down. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which gives us a score of 72, please, Shields. Fairly respectable, I think, yeah. Yeah. Less than let's hear it for the deaf man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, controversial. I think. Well, well, yeah, yeah, it takes all sorts. <laughs> <laughs> We're still, yeah, we still haven't toppled King's Ransom from the top, have we? Or um, a couple of things have come close, but uh, and we've not plummeted as far as eighty million King, eyes. King's Ransom. He who hesitated. No, no, Doll. Is it? Yeah, Doll's one of the high-rated ones. Sadie's one of the high-rated. Sadie's ones. Sadie a, when a she corker, died. Isn't it? Yeah. The, uh, and Fuzz are the top four. We, I can't remember what happens in what happens in Fuzz. The deaf man turns up. <laughs> oh right, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, Corella gets set on fire. I can only remember the ones that have totally literal. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, one where this happens. Yeah, eighty million eyes. You, see, you can always remember that. Yeah, because it's to do with man getting attacked by eighty million eyes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's a horrifying. King's story. ransom. Remember that's the one. It bulls a ransom. Yeah. And a king well, of sorts. I don't think there's necessarily anything bad about not being able to remember them because you can go and read them again. This yeah. is very true. But we'll conclude there. We'll do our bonus episode where we look at the book covers and some other information, some fantasy casting for the 87th Precinct, and more beside. But until the next time when we return to read the book Bread, where a man gets attacked by some bread. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say goodbye, as are these gentlemen. Goodbye. Goodbye. Fairly well.